You're listening to Cleveland First Baptist Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Rick Dill. For more information, please visit clevelandfirstbaptistchurch.com. Chris uh, had us sing the first song that we sang, Heaven Came Down. <laughs> and uh, I, always, I don't ever hear or sing that song without remembering when that was a uh, uh, one of the new praise songs <laughs> when we were in high school and we, I grew up at First Baptist Church in Jasper and um, I'll never forget that uh, we had about once a month we had a Sunday night service where you just it was a song service and everybody could pick a hymn you know and you just kind of went through the hymnal and everybody <laughs> the minister music would all say now we're singing to start with heaven came down to get it out of the way because we know the young people are going to want to sing that. So we're just going to do it right because, you know, somebody's going to request that. Uh, I love that. And, and we did always request that. That's true. You know, we're in a series um, through the book of Matthew. And uh, you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew 15. Um, you know, there is an advantage or a good thing about preaching a series through a book like this because... Um, it's not just every week picking a verse that you like or one that, um, you know, is, has a whatever. And you end up preaching on, on uh, verses that you might not would have preached on otherwise. And I think that's true with this passage. This would not have been a passage, probably if I'm flipping through, this is not one that I would have preached, uh, chosen to preach on. And, and it's been a very hard sermon to write. Let me just say that from the beginning. What Jesus says is, is really very simple in this passage. It's easy to understand. There's not anything difficult about understanding what this passage says. Where it gets hard is when you apply what Jesus says to life, then it is quite difficult and hard to hear, honestly. In the context, and Wesley wrote the whole, read the whole passage, in, in that 20 verses of scripture, Jesus actually has three different conversations. He begins, there's a conversation with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. And then after that, then Jesus calls the crowd, who obviously had been listening as they went along, and, and he uh, teaches them, but just very briefly with this short little parable. And then afterwards, the disciples come and he has a private conversation with them because they have not the faintest idea what he's talking about. It didn't make any sense to them at all. And so we have uh, his explanation of that parable. So we want to begin today just by kind of looking at these three different conversations and what Jesus uh, says as a part of them. First of all, it's the Pharisees, you know, and he just gives them the hard truth. Um, it's hard to hear, really. The Pharisees had criticized Jesus and his disciples for not ritually washing their hands before they ate. You know, of course, I had to chuckle when I read that. You know, think of how much you've heard about washing your hands in the last uh, six months. I mean, crazy. Well, this had absolutely nothing to do with personal hygiene or health. Nothing in the least. It was a religious regulation intended to symbolize the purity of those who love and follow God. Jesus, however, when asked and criticized, he goes on the attack. And what he says, it is, it is hard. It is hard. He made clear that the Pharisees used religion 
as a way to submit their political power and their worldly wealth. In so doing, they were willing just to completely cancel the actual meaning of God's word for the sake of their own tradition. So Jesus gives uh, one example. He talks about Corban. And um, so that was a word that the, the Jews had for this particular way of getting around uh, what God required. God says in the Ten Commandments uh, to honor and obey your parents, right? Well, that didn't mean just when you were a child. That meant all your life to treat them with respect and provide for them. When they were at the point in their lives where they could not provide for themselves, then you had the responsibility of providing for them. Well, the Pharisees had come up with a way, and they even gave it a name, Corbin. And so they decided that, well, to get around that, if you had set aside a certain amount of money or whatever to take care of your parents who were, say, let's say, ill or whatever it might be, um, and you had that responsibility, what you could do is say, well, this money, it is Corban. That means it is, it is designated for God, and thus they don't get it. Sorry, Mom. Sorry, Dad. You know, they don't get it. And um, the funny thing about it is... <laughs> That meant that they didn't have to spend it taking care of their parents, but it also, it did not mean that they had to spend it serving God in any way. They could go ahead and just use it however they wanted to. That was their rule. They made it up, and that's how they did it. And Jesus said this to them, and so you cancel the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, the Pharisees. For he wrote, these people honor me with their lips. There are a lot of hot air, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. Whew, harsh, huh? Well, the Pharisees, they didn't like that. They didn't like it a little bit. But afterwards, Jesus calls the crowd together that I'm assuming has been listening to them. And uh, he says, listen, and, and just try to understand this, talking to the crowd. He said, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. And that word defile, that means that makes you unacceptable to God or unable to worship or unholy in his sight. So he says, it's not the words it's not the, what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You are defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. Now, that seems pretty clear to us, does it not? That just seems quite logical, especially if we know a little bit about biology. We know that the, how the digestive process works, and it goes in, and then it comes out the other end. But, you know, the people must have been shaking their heads because they didn't get it at all. Even the disciples did not understand what Jesus was saying. And so they come to him and they say, look, you got you to explain this parable because we don't get it. What is that about? Jesus, he's, you sense the frustration a bit at their inability to comprehend even a spiritual truth that is so simple. But he does then give them an interpretation, which is also helpful to us. Don't you understand yet, he asked? Anything you eat passes through the stomach and then goes out into the sewer. But the words you speak, they come from your heart. That's what defiles you. That's what makes you unacceptable to God. 
For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander, just to name a few. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will never defile you. It is a little shocking, isn't it, that this truth seems so hard for the disciples to comprehend. Would they not know that a person's actions reflect the condition of their heart? Would they not know that a changed heart would result in a life lived differently? Would they not know that God cares about the attitudes of the heart and not the rituals of religion? Wouldn't they know that? Do we? It's a good question, isn't it? Just briefly, though, we've got to back up a little. We've got to look at what God has been doing all along. It's very important to see this verse in the context of what God is doing in human history. Okay, first of all, the problem with man was always a heart problem. It was always the heart. Let's just think about that. Why did Adam and Eve sin? Why did they eat the apple? Because Satan said, if you eat of it, you know, since God's a liar, then you're going to be your own God. You'll be the one who decides what's right and wrong. You can live how you want to. You'll be God. That is the whole point. The whole point of, of that verse. He said, you will be the one who decides right from wrong. You'll be God. And you know what? They liked the idea of being their own God. Why did Cain kill his brother Abel? Because his heart was jealous and rebellious. Why do people... Why do we continue to sin? And, and Jesus listed some of the things so common to us today. You know, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. You know, that's not some foreign world. That's the world we're in and a part of, sadly. Why? Because the heart of man does not love God. The heart of man loves man. Secondly, God has had a plan all along. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. You know, God called a people to be his own special possession. Remember Abraham? And through them, he would send a savior to rescue us all from death and to give us new hearts, hearts that would finally, really, truly belong to him. So as a part of that plan, God gave his people instructions for life. That's really what the Ten Commandments are. They are instructions for life. They tell us how to live lives that are set apart for God. The Bible calls them holy, but we think of holy always you know, as some sort of weirdo, goody two-shoes or something. It's nothing like that. Holy means it is something special, dedicated to God, taken out of the word, world and given to him. It belongs to him. 
And, and that's what the Ten Commandments really do. It's God helping us to understand how to do that. But it was always about the heart. It was never about some sort of legalism. Not about empty religion. It was about having a different heart that, that wanted to be like God. In his love for his people, he even gave a way for them to find forgiveness when their hearts went astray. He said, you can bring an animal sacrifice and you can give that in repentance to find forgiveness from that sin. So what did man do with all that? Well, he decided just to write his own set of rules so that he could just look like he loved God, but really live like he wanted to. He could keep that old hardened heart. He called those rules religion. So instead of honoring parents by caring for them in their time of need, man wrote his own rule that allowed him to ignore the needs of his parents and just to keep everything for himself. While at the same time screaming, praise the Lord, we love the Lord. But they did not have hearts that loved the Lord no matter what they said. So, that was then. What about now? What, what has changed? I mean, that's been 2,000 years. What has changed? In a way, nothing has changed. In a way. What God desires has not changed at all. Not at all. God still wants a people whose hearts belong to Him and whose lives reflect that in the way they live. God never did and still does not desire hollow sacrifices and empty religious ritual. He wants to live in you and to be a part of your everyday life. God hasn't changed, nor has His plan. And what man does, that hasn't changed either. Man still struggles to love anything but himself. Man still finds a way to look good without having a changed heart. Man replaces genuine trust with just religious acts. A new set of rules. Well, it might be good works. You know, I give to the poor, I attend worship, or I do my part, or I might replace a changed heart with religious, religious ritual. You know, I, I've been baptized, or I've been a member of church all my life, or hey, I've been a deacon for 10 years. That doesn't say anything about your heart. You can do every one of those things without Jesus living in your heart. In a way, nothing has changed. But in another way, everything has changed. For one, on the cross, Jesus completed God's plan for our rescue. For our rescue from sin and death. God had promised to change our hearts one day. He promised that one day I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn, dead heart and I will give you a tender, 
responsive, a living heart. And that is exactly what Jesus does when we are saved. He gives us a new heart. You know, when Peter preached after Pentecost, it was an interesting thing, and you should not miss this. Um, you know, there you have the first conversions, 5,000 people. There have been 120 believers at Pentecost, and, uh, you know, then all of these people come to faith. But what the Scripture tells you, it says, and they were pierced in the heart when they heard Peter preach. That is, the heart was touched. And they responded by saying, what do we do? What do we do? Something's going on inside of me. What do I do about it? And Peter responded. He said, well, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You get a new heart filled with the very presence of God. But this is our problem. Those things, repenting and turning and being baptized, unless they reflect a true change that God works in us, they're nothing more than ritual. I can say a prayer. I can say it 50 times. But if my heart is not changed by God, it's just hollow words. Amen. I can be baptized. Some are baptized 10 times. But if the heart is not changed, it's just ritual. I can say Jesus is Lord. But if he is not Lord over my life. Just hollow words. If it is just religion, religion, however. If that's all it is. There is no forgiveness. And I do not receive. The Holy Spirit that gives that new heart. You know, I might do some good things. I might talk a lot about God. I might be quite religious, but unless my heart is changed, he said, I don't know you. That was what was wrong with the Pharisees. And that could still happen today. So, where does that end? How do you sum that sermon up? Well, I hope you're asking, how can I know that my heart is changed? How can I know whether it's just religion or whether or not it's real? Chris gave a spontaneous testimony before he knew what I was going to say. And, and he recalled the day when... Uh, you know, when God touched him and changed him and he made that confession of faith. But, you know, and I remember, I said this in the first service, man, do I remember that day myself. Actually, for me, it was 
more like a month or longer because it didn't go so quick. You know, it's real though. But you know, if I'm asking today, how can I know that that was God working and that something actually did change? Well, the first thing I have to say is only you can know. You see, I can't know about you. I can't know what went on in your heart. And I can't look into your heart today and say, oh yeah, he's a believer. I just cannot do that. If I talk to someone about following Christ and, you know, they say, well, yeah, yeah, I'm a believer. That's it. God done all that. My answer is always the same. I am glad to hear that. Because, I mean, who am I to question that? I can't look into your heart. Only you can know that God has changed you and filled you with the true desire to follow Him. Only you can judge how your heart hurts because of the sin that is still in your life and how your heart longs to be like Jesus. Only you can know. But I do think the scripture gives you some help here and I'm thankful for it. As you look at your own life, I would like to encourage you to ask three questions. One, does agape describe your life? Agape is that self-sacrificing nature of God that caused him to leave heaven and become a man for you and me. It was agape that caused him to pay the price for our sin on the cross. And it is because of agape that God has made a home for you and me with him in heaven. And that was done at great expense to him. Does that kind of selflessness describe your life? A willingness to give up your time and resources and personal glory for God's glory and the glory of God's kingdom and for God's people? When the Holy Spirit lives in you and your heart has been changed, the result is agape. Secondly, ask yourself, does faithfulness describe the way I live? You know, continually, the, the Scripture describes God as faithful. He faithfully keeps His promises. When the Holy Spirit lives in us, we exhibit that characteristic of God. Faithfulness to the promises you made on the day of your salvation. If it was 60 years ago, then 60 years ago you said Jesus is Lord. And he is still Lord today. You are still faithful to that promise. Have you been faithful to your promise to make Jesus Lord? Lord over your relationships, over your time, over your resources. Are you faithful to the body of Christ into which you were born again and apart from which you cannot seriously be a disciple of Christ. Are you faithful? A new heart, a changed heart, a heart filled with the Spirit of God will be faithful because God is faithful. 
And thirdly, ask yourself, is hope the thing I build my life on? If the Holy Spirit lives in us, in that changed heart, then we do not place our hope in the things of this world, for they will all pass. Instead, we are continually aware that this life is not about this life. This life is about the next life. It is about the reality of our resurrection and our eternity in God's presence. If our hope is built on that, then our hearts will not hang on the things and on the people and on the glory found in this world. Our hope will be all about Jesus and about His kingdom. Is your heart alive with Christ and the things of Christ? Or is it just a hard rock with a little religion painted on the outside? Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you even when it's a word that knocks us around a bit. Father, I thank you that you were honest with the Pharisees and surely that is because you love them. And I pray that you would honestly touch our hearts. Help us to live for you. Lord, I pray that no one here would be fooling themselves, keeping an old worldly heart that is not open to you and just painting a little religion on the outside. Lord, I pray you would just help us to, um, to hear your voice and to let you change and mold our hearts. Father, we love you. We pray, Father, that you would touch us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, today, it's a hard sermon to preach, really. But I would say to you, if... Um, you know where God is in your life. I don't have the privilege of looking into your heart. I can't. But you do, and you know. And if you sense God speaking to you, I hope that you don't stuff that down in a corner somewhere. But let's get together and talk about that. You know, God wants you to have that heart that lives for something that isn't going to pass away. That's what he wants you to do. You know, the verse that Jesus quoted from Isaiah is also the verse we're about to sing. And in it, um, both the song and Isaiah, he says, surely if God is the potter and you're the clay, you don't tell the potter what to do. You're the clay and you're to be molded. And this song says that, change my heart, mold me. As you sing it, sing it from your heart. Let it be a prayer to God.